Well, today uh, we witness the baptism of an infant child. That may not be something that all of you have grown up with. It surely was not how uh, I was raised. Um, And it may bring for you a lot of questions or concerns. Uh, It was definitely something uh, through my seminary years I swore I would never do. uh, And yet here we are. Uh, And while I don't pretend that one sermon will answer every possible objection you have or clear up any sort of concerns you may uh, feel, I do think taking some time to look at the biblical principles that undergird the practice are helpful from time to time. And today's text in 1 Corinthians helps us see several things concerning both the meaning and the message of baptism. And so I want us to see first an Old Testament baptism, an Old Testament baptism. You'll notice Paul opens his text in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, that our forefathers. And so he's speaking to this Gentile congregation, and yet Paul uh, brings them all in solidarity. He doesn't say, uh, me is the Jewish one here, my forefathers went through the Red Sea. But instead he says to all of them, uh, our forefathers, that for Paul and the Christian church, Israel's history is our history. Their story is our story, that it is this continuing, unfolding story of God. So much so that Paul will say, for instance, if you and I want to understand something like justification by faith, he says, well, then let's talk about Abraham, who God counted as righteous because he believed. If we want to understand imputation of Christ's righteousness and our sin being imputed to him, Paul would say, well, look at David, this one who cries out how good it is to not have one's sins imputed to them. And Paul would also say that if you and I want to understand the sacraments of the church, that we could look back, particularly today, and see what happened in the Exodus with the nation of Israel, and from there gain some sort of perspective and knowledge about the sacraments that we perform even this day. We'll see that Paul reminds the Corinthians that Israel did have a baptism that Israel partook even of Christ in a meal in the wilderness. Uh, In fact, he's going to teach the New Testament church how to respond to the fact that they've been baptized and that they have the Lord's Supper, uh, that they should learn from Israel's example how you and I are to respond to the fact that God gives us a table and he puts water on us in baptism. Lest we think this is just some sort of wooden illustration from the Old Testament, You know, he keeps using that word example. He wants to make plain to us that these were spiritual realities back there. It wasn't just some physical thing there, and now it's a spiritual thing here. He says they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them because the rock was Christ. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, There are many who want to tell us that we should take the Bible literally. I would suggest now would be a good place to take the Bible literally. And Paul's interpretation here, when he looks back and reads the Old Testament and he sees the rock from which water flowed out, he tells you and I that if you want to understand what that is, that's Jesus, that Christ is the rock there. And for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus mainly on the baptismal aspect of this text and these words that our forefathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. I mean, Paul is obviously pointing back to that Old Testament text that we referenced this morning, Exodus chapter 14, and that 
most famous event in all of Israel's history. This really is the climax of their history, the deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea into what would eventually be the promised land some 40 years later. (laughs) It wasn't supposed to be that long, but here we are. But what does that mean to be baptized in the cloud? Well, maybe you caught it this morning. It's not something that we would necessarily put together, but Paul teaches us how to read the text. And he says that they were baptized into the cloud, referring to that part in Exodus 14, where it says the pillar of cloud moved from before the company and it passed over them and it stood then as their rear guard. We learn from Moses that that cloud is none other than the very presence of God himself among his people. And so when that cloud passes over the entirety of the company, Paul says they were baptized in that cloud. And that cloud is nothing less than the very presence and person of the triune God. That's who's there. God is the one baptizing them. And in the sea, maybe that's a little easier for us to understand because there's water involved. uh, And we're talking about water baptism. Clearly, Paul is talking about the Red Sea. Uh, Now, What's interesting about this particular baptism is the ones who get immersed aren't uh, the Israelites, uh, but the Egyptians. Uh, Instead, Israel walks through on dry ground. It's one of the drier baptisms in history. Uh, But there's a stark contrast between the watery death of the Egyptians in that sea and the safe passage of the Israelites to that same exact space. And that's of the utmost importance if you're going to understand what baptism means at all. You see, when we have an infant baptism or any baptism, a lot of times we think all sorts of warm and fuzzy feelings, and we should. It is a beautiful event. It is a great blessing. But maybe you've seen that meme uh, of the baby getting baptized that reads, um, you know, I, I kid you not that I went to church today and some guy in a dress almost tried to drown me while my whole family stood there and took pictures. Um, that's actually closer to the meaning of baptism, I think, than most of us would normally associate. It's on to something. You see, baptism, while it does bring blessing and salvation, those really, in one sense, are secondary benefits, not the primary reality. And what do I mean by that? You'll notice for Israel, the Red Sea is not immediately a picture of salvation. They don't see the Red Sea and think, this is how God saves. Uh, I'm so glad that this sea is standing between us and the enemies chasing us from behind. Now, when they come to the Red Sea, they surmise rightly that this is their death, right? They, they tell Moses, you know, they're about to die, but they have enough time for sarcasm, which I oddly do appreciate. Uh, they tell Moses, so there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? We told you, you should have let us just serve the Egyptians, which is quite a profession of faith before their baptism, right? Uh, so for them, the Red Sea isn't a deliverance, It's a death, and surely the Red Sea will become a death for the whole of the Egyptian army. Um, If you don't believe me, uh, you know, well, let's just say this. In our text, we see this move from death to life, right? And that really should 
start to set off some bells in your own mind about what baptism means in the New Testament. But you see that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the waters by a strong east wind, right? And then the waters walled up on either side and God's people found safe passage on dry ground. So there's this wind, the waters are divided and dry land is the result and salvation is ultimately what's affected by that action of God. I mean, you've heard that story before on the very first pages of the Bible, that there's the spirit, it's the same word here used for wind, is hovering over the waters, these waters of chaos that make the world completely uninhabitable. And God speaks, the spirit moves, and the waters are divided, right? From the waters above and the waters below. And what happens? Dry ground appears, this place where man can live and inhabit new creation, New creation is the result from God dividing the waters and sending his spirit or sending the wind to divide. And if that's too, you know, weird for you, and I get that, the Hebrew Bible is weird, you better buckle up. Um, We see it real clearly in this other Old Testament baptism that the New Testament authors often refer to. Uh, You know, the flood of Noah, we see again that those waters that God divided at creation, he opens the windows of heaven, we're told in the text. He breaks up the, 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 the geysers or the wells of the deep. And all of a sudden, those waters that were divided collapse on the world, right? And the whole world is flooded so that there is no inhabitable land anymore. That creation is reversed and a judgment takes place where everyone, save eight souls, die in this watery judgment. I mean, the baptism of the world that takes place in Noah's day, almost everyone drowns. And again, you know, those pictures that we often get of the flood of Noah, there's always these happy people on the boat, but we never think about how many people are in the water, right? You know, we don't put those up in our nurseries. Uh, Our books have only the, 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 the cute part. But it is first and foremost a judgment against the world. And again, salvation does come. But in one sense, that is not the preeminent thing that's going on, but the accident. This one family God saves, and when he saves them, Peter says to us in the New Testament, you too have a baptism just like that. Isn't that interesting? And what happens? God eventually sends a wind, and the waters recede, and dry land appears, and these eight people walk out on what is essentially a brand new creation. Well, that's what's happening in the Red Sea, right? God divides these waters. He pushes his people through in this saving act. And when they get to the other side and their enemies die behind them, they have taken their first steps into this new life, this new reality where they've been transferred from the authority of Pharaoh to the authority of God. And they will serve him now and live this new existence all because of their baptism. In both of these watery events, you have New Testament authors saying, hey, look at the flood, look at the Red Sea. There you see the baptisms of God. How do they show us what baptism means? Well, notice we see a few things from this. First, baptism is God's doing. It's his initiative. He calls the people by his name. He prepares them for their way. He sets them up in a boat. Uh, He recedes waters and so forth. It's God's doing. The second thing we see is that baptism is first and foremost a sign of judgment through which a salvation is affected. Salvation comes through watery judgment. And the third thing we see is that baptism transfers us from one life to another. 
one state of being to another. Noah is in a world where everyone is only evil all the time, and he's put forward in a world that is cleared of that reality. Israel is serving under the, the, the tyranny of Egypt. They're ushered forth into a whole new world where they have a different master. The same is true as we'll see of baptism. We see finally that baptism is not first and foremost about our declaration of faith. If that were so, Israel's really hard to explain because their declaration of faith was, see, I told you, you should have let us just stay in Egypt and be slaves. It's not until after they crossed the Red Sea that we're told, Moses says, they saw the power of the Lord and they believed. In one sense, their faith again was post-baptism, not pre-baptism. They were hardly prepared for what was coming. So it's not a declaration about their faith, but it's a declaration first and foremost of God's faithfulness and promise that calls the recipient to faith all lifelong. Baptism says something about God and God putting himself on you and then saying, because God's done this for you, he's looking for a response, a response of faith every day of this particular journey as you go forward. Well, if that's the Old Testament baptism, let's see if that uh, at least shakes out uh, in what the New Testament tells us about baptism. We see a New Testament baptism. You see, in the New Testament, we are baptized, as we're told in Matthew 28, into the singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In baptism, as we learned this morning, God places his name and his promise of his presence on us. We have the presence of God placed on us as those waters are poured out, right? I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God, if you will, has, you know, for, for lack of a better uh, analogy and a bit crass, he's tattooed you with water in his own name. And he's saying, as real as that is, so my presence is promised to you through this baptism. Just like that cloud of his presence passed over the people, so his waters pass over us and promise that he will be with us throughout this age. In the New Testament baptism, we are told we are taken from death to life, from what should be a judgment to us somehow into salvation. Just like those waters flooded the world and destroyed the, the, the chariots of Egypt, so baptismal's water, to baptismal water shows forth death and judgment, but it issues forth to us in salvation, right? Paul says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into a death. I mean, baptism is not as pretty as we make it. We are being baptized into a death in order that we'll be raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. You died, we are told, and your life is now hidden with Christ. And in that baptism, you are transferred from one owner to another. You even heard it this morning, right? We, we're renouncing in baptism the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, just like those uh, Israelites who were there in Egypt under his leadership and, and, and the onerous uh, burden of his slavery, so in baptism we're saying we renounce in one, uh, the condemnation that is ours by birth. We really are born in sin and we're being transferred into the kingdom of God's love. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, we are told. 
And that baptism is based on the faithful work of Jesus that calls us to faith all life long. You know, we are buried in Him in death in order that we might walk in newness of life. So he says, we're, you're, you're getting put under this judgment in order that you might walk in a new way, that you might live for this one who has baptized you. So notice, baptism defines us. It really does. It tells us who we are. When you're baptized, you're one of God's people. You're either doing it well or you're doing it poorly. Uh, but who you are is not under consideration. You have the name and the presence of God on you. It delivers you from one state to another. You were formerly in the world under the dominion of the evil one. Now you are in the ark of Christ's church. You are safe in the bosom of his people. And it calls you then to live according to your name and according to that identity. It calls you day in and day out, be who you are. You are a baptized person. The triune name is on you. He has claimed you for himself. And your obligation to that baptism is to believe, is to own him as your own. We can, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of our own doubt, look back on our baptism and gain confidence there. Do you wonder sometimes, am I really God's? Does he really, you know, has my sin disqualified me for his family? Have I done one too many things? Is his presence really with me? Well, baptism is a static sign that gets reapplied, if you will, all life long, just like I did this morning. When that baptism took place, your baptism was also reapplied. Where when you're in doubt, you can say, how do I know that God is for me? And you can see, because I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that that God told me at that moment, that punctiliar space of time, that he was my God and I was his child. And that gives me the right to go back to him in faith and believe what is spoken in those waters. One of Luther's main points about faith concerning baptism is he says that faith doesn't exist for the sake of baptism, meaning it's not that you have faith so that you can be baptized, but baptism exists for the sake of faith. What does he mean by that? When he would experience temptation, you know, you've probably read, you know, he was a, uh, an interesting cat full of exuberance uh, that he would have these battles with his own conscience, with the devil. And his, you know, his go-to move over and over was to cry out, I am a baptized man. Why does he do that? Because he can't trust himself and his own heart or even the actions he committed yesterday, but he can trust what God spoke to him in the waters of baptism and use that as a way for him to cry out in faith saying, I believe that promise of God concerning me. And we'll see why that's so important here. You see, the reason baptism gives us comfort is not because it proclaims to us our commitment to God. It doesn't remind us about our declaration of faith, as as wonderful as that is. It comforts us because it reminds us of our deliverance, of our death, of the promise of God concerning that deliverance and death. You see, if it is first a sign of judgment, a sign of certain death, it surely is the sign of the death that you and I deserve. If you look at the flood, why was... That whole world 
brought under the waters of the flood. Well, because of the same sins that you and I commit every day. I mean, we should be swimming with the fishes, uh, not sitting on the boat. The reason that the Egyptians drown in the Red Sea is because they were against God and against his ways, the very place that we should be. What is it about us, about what we've done, that should garner God's favor? I mean, if we're going to be serious about that question, I think, you know, most of us would have enough self-awareness to say, well, nothing I've done is sufficient to garner the favor of God. Nothing at all, save this thing, that our Savior Jesus Christ underwent the waters of judgment on our behalf. I mean, there's a reason that Jesus talks about his crucifixion as a baptism. Because all of those former floods are pointing forward to this ultimate flood, where God pours out all the judgment that is deserved on sin. You remember when they were arguing about whether who would get to sit on the right hand or the left hand of our Savior. And what does Jesus say? He says, hey, can you drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? He looks back or he looks forward to the cross work that he's about to achieve. And he says, my baptism awaits me on that cross where God will pour out all of his fury against sin. But again, not just uh, 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 the idea of sin, but your particular sins, the ones you've actually committed, the ones that you can barely look certain people in the eye because of, those were judged. Christ was drowned in God's wrath on that day so that you and I could walk through on dry ground, that we could be issued forth into a new state of things, that we could ultimately make it to new creation. That cross is a flood, but it is not you and I who died there. Or was it? See, that's what our baptism is doing. It's saying that ultimate flood and this little pouring out of water, you are being plunged into that great flood, which is why it says in your baptism, you died. All of your sins were brought under the judgment of God. That that really happened, that your life is now hidden with Christ and God and the judgment that was poured out on him that you deserved has in fact been poured out on you. You never have to worry about it again. It's already been accomplished. It's interesting that after Christ's cross work, not long after a strong and mighty wind comes howling through on Pentecost that we will celebrate not too long from now. And after that wind blows, it's amazing. A whole new creation begins with the gathering of Christ's church and baptism. Well, you may say that's all well and good and you believe it, but we're going to conclude with this. What does that have to do with babies? Um, it's a great question. If you look carefully at Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to be get real wooden here and then we'll go forward. Who gets baptized here in the Red Sea? This example. 
You'll notice Paul five times, he wants to stress it just so we all know, that all of Israel was baptized in the cloud and in the sea. And that includes young and old. It includes nursing infants and aged men. That all the company of Israel, all of God's people were brought under this baptismal event. The same thing again happens in the flood of Noah. They didn't have infants, but notice Noah is found righteous in the sight of God, but it's Noah, his sons, and his son's wives who all enter the ark. That God is baptizing the whole, if you will, of the household. But it's not just that God does baptize infants in the Red Sea, because he does. But what is more is that God's view of the whole nation of Israel is that she's an infant. In a very real sense, every baptism is an infant baptism. There is no such thing as an adult, someone who's matured and then comes to be baptized. We all come in the same, at, the, you know, at the same level, and it's the plane of infancy. You know, when God looks back at the Red Sea, it's interesting. If you read your Old Testament, he looks back at Israel and he says, when Israel was a child, an infant child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In the very next paragraph, God says in Hosea, and in due time, I taught him how to walk. So notice when Israel, the whole company walks through as one, God's viewing them as a small infant who still needs to learn how to walk in due time. We all come into the kingdom at the same age with the same exact ability, which means we have none and we have nothing to offer. There is nothing to hang our hat on. It's not enough faithing. It's not enough working. It's not that God loves you because you did something to acquire his love. It is rather God first loves us so that we can even be empowered to love him, which is what makes infant baptism so beautiful. It puts your view of salvation, justification by faith, the sovereignty of God, and the love of God to the test. Does God really save by grace and grace alone? Well, let's find out. We'll pour water on a baby's head and see how you react. <laughs> see, we always want something to add, don't we? But a New Testament witness makes plain that God hasn't changed with his views to children. As we've mentioned already, suffer the infant children. That's literally the language to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. My promise is to you and to your children. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is now, they are holy. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Believe, you and, you, believe and you will be saved, you and your entire household. Beloved, this is why we bring children under the waters of baptism without apology, without shame or embarrassment. For God ultimately is the one who has promised to be a God to us and to our children. But this also means there are great responsibilities that go along with this blessing. I mean, today a sign of judgment was placed on a child who didn't ask for it. And we even confess that that small child was worthy of such a judgment, that our children are born in sin and worthy of condemnation. But that sign of judgment is a blessing because of Jesus and the judgment he has taken on the cross for us and for our children. And like Israel of old, this child this morning crossed the Red Sea waters and has been delivered along with her parents and been claimed and owned by God and has a responsibility now to respond in faith. That that really is her obligation. God has claimed her 
and all life long is calling her, repent and believe, trust in me until we make it to the promised land. Yes, they need faith. And yes, this baptism calls them to faith every day of their life. But I think where we get hung up is we believe that that's a little person problem. And that somehow, because we've reached whatever age we're at, that surely we either deserve baptism or baptism makes sense for us. But notice Paul's exhortations in 1 Corinthians is to a lot of big people. And he says, hey, you better watch out. A lot of those people died in the wilderness because they didn't mingle those blessings with faith. So flee from sexual immorality, right? Uh, Watch out for idolatry. You know, these people, they had a baptism. They had a meal in which Christ was present, but they died in the wilderness because they gave themselves over to the temptations of this life and would not mingle those promises with faith. I mean, are you and I not tempted sexually on a regular basis? I mean, doesn't our culture put before us and before our eyes so many things to lust after? Are we not tempted to flirt with sexual sin? Are we not tempted towards blatant idolatry? this kind of self-aggrandizement on our own hearts, often seeking other things to put their hope and trust and time and energy in over God and His glory. Or maybe this one. You complain at all? I mean, most of those people died for that. Grumbling against God's providence in the midst of their journey. Of course, we're tempted like that. Of course, we too are in the wildernesses of this world awaiting that abiding promised land. I mean, how will we make it? I mean, the same way we're saying that our children will make it. Remember your baptism. See those things for what they are and realize they deserve judgment. But remember that Christ was judged on your behalf and believe You see, we're not looking for our kids to make a one-time decision. Just like I'm not looking for you to make a one-time decision. But to live a life where over and over we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because we need to be saved. That is the life of faith, and it's true for us and for our children. Let's pray.